Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a reading from Stephanie Tam, who shares a poem from the anthology, Ordinary Women. Here's more from Stephanie. My name is Stephanie Tam, and I'm a creative director and designer based in Los Angeles by way of New York City. In my work, I focus on the creation of experiences through an ongoing exploration of the way space, people, and objects come together. The way we experience the places we are in, both in the present and in the past, has taken on new meaning this year. Having grown up in New York, early experiences of living in Chinatown have shaped both a personal and cultural identity, which I've been thinking a lot more about in these days. In this light, something that made me slow down is a book I recently discovered, Ordinary Women, an anthology of poetry self-published by a group of New York City women in 1977. Today, I'll be reading from the book an excerpt from Impressions, a piece about a family gathering on a spring day by writer Fei Chang. It is now the day after Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, all four children were home, scrubbed and dutifully escorting mother to the relatives in Brooklyn, four sets of uncles, aunts, nine cousins with grandmother and grandfather, and one uncle who lives by himself. We went in two cars to the botanical gardens, amoeba-like fashion, and slowly proceeded down Cherry Walk, making four steps forward and two back in the afternoon sun. It seemed as though every other Asian and their mother, the entire Asian population of Brooklyn and Chinatown, were also there, posing for family portraits beneath cherry blossoms blooming abundantly, as rolling clouds crossed oceans of sky and colorful helium balloons floated in the wind, while every single baby and child seemed radiant and smiling in this very removed section of Brooklyn, in New York City, in New York State, in Eastern Region of America, in the United States of the Northern Hemisphere, in the world, on this universe, as opposed to places like Mars, which is close by. Thank you so much again to Stephanie for sharing. Again, the excerpt she read is from the piece Impressions, written by Fei Chang. Now here's my conversation with Leslie Thornton of Clur. Beauty industry luminaries like Leslie Thornton prove that with a little extra care, beauty can offer something much greater than aesthetics. It can leave an imprint on someone's heart. From an early age, Leslie had a commitment to community building, and coupling this with her lifelong love of beauty, skincare, and artistry allowed her to connect with people from all walks of life. Professionally, Leslie's work in the cosmetics industry is far-reaching, and her past roles have ranged from retired esthetician, to makeup for the Estee Lauder companies, to on-air beauty and skincare expert for Discovery Networks. But most recently, Leslie has channeled her passion and expertise into building Clare, an eco-inclusive botanicals brand made in California. 
Industry insights aside, Leslie's journey in building Claire has been a slow and ever-evolving process. But despite the brand's ups and downs, Leslie's careful balance of science-led formulations and refined storytelling has created a business foundation for Claire to endure and thrive. For Leslie, inclusivity, sustainability, and community all transcend Claire's mission statement, and her own story is living proof of the holistic impact that comes when we prioritize people over products. Leslie had a lot to share in that regard, and she also spoke more about the life experiences that have shaped her approach in building Claire, the importance of visual storytelling in her life, both online and offline, and what she's learned about the inextricable link between self-care and community care. I've spoken with a lot of founders over the years, but this particular conversation has stayed with me, and I hope that it stays with you too. So on that note, enjoy my conversation with Leslie Thornton of Claire. My name is Leslie, and I'm an aunt. I'm a very proud aunt. I have three awesome nieces that I absolutely love. I value my family very much. I value people and human life, and I value really good food. All important things, and it makes sense given the nature of your work. It is so people-focused. I think something that I've learned about my own relationship with beauty and skincare is that you can connect on this sort of visceral level. You're talking about ways to take care of yourself, and that's a really amazing point of connection and talking to others. Do you um, speak to your nieces about skincare and wellness? Are they interested in what you're doing? I do. It's really sweet. I have a 13-year-old niece. Um, she's 12. And every once in a while, I'll send her you know, something before it comes out. So the last product we had was Supreme Seed, which is a delicate purification mask that was totally appropriate for her skin. And she's a big lover of YouTube. So she asked my sister to record her making a sort of her own version of a YouTube. My sister won't let her on YouTube, but she said, Mom, can you make kind of like a YouTube style video? So she is in the bathroom at my sister's house and she goes on and she says, hi, I'm Layla and I'm here to talk about Claire's mask. And it's a really nice texture and it feels really good. It smells really good. And I put it on my skin for a few minutes and then I do my homework. And it was just such a magical moment. The, the product hadn't been out yet, but she was literally my first YouTube review. And, you know, she ends it with 10 out of 10. It's amazing. <laughs> My sister says that it's so funny. Layla really loves Claire. She watches the YouTube reviews of other um, creators and she'll always come back to me and say, you know, mom, Auntie Leslie really does make amazing products. <laughs> <laughs> And I value that. I mean, it does. It means so much to me that even with a high performance skincare line that my niece who's 12 or 13 can actually, number one, appreciate the quality of the product. She can feel that it feels good. It makes her skin look beautiful. And, you know, not only obviously do I make it so she's a little biased, but I think she really does find love on taking care of her skin. Oh, I love that. What a lovely story. And I think it probably goes back to kind of the sustainability aspect in terms of the relationships that you're forming or encouraging. It's almost like you're creating an opportunity for ritual. I mean, 
it is definitely an opportunity for ritual, but I think that everyone's rituals are so different and what they do with them is what I'm more interested in. I don't think I want to create rituals that are, you know, preconditioned. I don't feel like I want to set any standards for rituals. I just want people to create their own. And that's really what my interest lies in is like watching people create what they want around the products that I create, what their experience is. That makes sense. And I think on the note of personal experience and, and history, I'm curious if there is a particular story that's resonated with you, whether it's an article, a poem or a book, and you know, if it's made you slow down or shaped your relationship with beauty or self in a way. Yeah. I picked up a book this past summer, probably May sometime, June, I'm not sure, but it was the most beautiful book. And it was um, Tyler Mitchell's I Can Make You Feel mm-hmm. Good. I think he's the youngest photographer to have a Vogue cover. He shot Beyonce for Vogue a couple years ago, and it's beautiful. Um, I picked up his book, and it is such a beautiful book. I've left it out just so I can, you know, go through it. And there's very few words, but the notion of seeing Black people, dark-skinned Black people in such a beautiful photographic way, in the form of self-care, in playfulness, in outdoor space, surrounded by nature's creating this sort of photographic utopia. The book's title is I Can Make You Feel Good does exactly that. It just reminds me and inspires me that I can continue to have a relationship with nature, continue to have this relationship with myself, and that my personal liberation is self-care. And a few months later, I got a DM from Tyler saying how much he loves our mask. And little did he know that his book was really giving me so much purpose and just changing my relationship with self-care. So I had no idea that he purchased a Clore product. So it was really a full moment of buying this book. And then months later down the road, he DMing me and saying, I love you guys' mask. It's amazing. It's amazing. I'm a fan of his work. But yeah, I think, you know, just having those reference points in terms of being able to connect with some of the simpler moments outside of the day-to-day and the stress that can make it hard to slow down. It's so key. And your story is still unfolding in so many ways, I'm sure, but in the context of Clur, it's been anything but linear. And so I'd love to have you give a brief overview of your career journey and maybe share some unexpected but really pivotal experiences that shaped how you approach building the business today. Yeah. So Clur, I describe it as an accumulation of all my experiences. Even the experiences I didn't realize were going to be this magnanimous moments in my life. When I graduated from college, I thought I would go on to do an internship in fashion or beauty or something like that. I was putting myself through school as a makeup artist. So I figured I'd get an internship working in makeup or something like that. And an opportunity came up that I would in fact get an internship at an art gallery. And a week before the internship were to start, Hurricane Katrina hit. And this is August of 2005. And this is one of the most horrific disasters to ever happen on our soil in America, period. It's a humanitarian crisis at the least. And I'm so struck by what I'm watching on television that I decide that I don't want to do this internship. I'm going to go to New Orleans and I'm going to help people. I'm going to do whatever I can. So I call up a radio station that is kind of like an NPR, but it's called KPFK. It's a very small um, local radio station, but very much involved on a local communal level. And I said, do you know how I can get to New Orleans? 
And they said, yeah, we actually do. We have a caravan of people going to New Orleans in the next few days. Do you want to go? And I said, yes, absolutely. So I drive my car over to the radio station. I leave it there. I told my roommate, I'm taking off. Can you pick up my car? I don't know if it'll get towed or what'll happen. But I get in a van and drive to New Orleans with 22 other people. I am the only black person in the entire group. So, and where we're going is obviously New Orleans. So we're talking about a very large population of black, poor, underserved, underprivileged people. And um, this moment in my life completely changes my life. I'm in New Orleans for six months. There I do, I learn about everything from environmental racism to wetland restoration, to community gardening, to community clinics, to community organizing, grassroots organizing. I end up with a group that is a very small group that starts something called Common Ground Collective. And eventually over the course of eight years, Common Ground becomes probably the most well-known activism group in New Orleans. It's headed by two ex-Black Panthers, Malik Rahim and Sharon Rahim, and they are both community leaders. And essentially, when I get there, I am quite overwhelmed with all these aspects of what's happening, whether it be food justice needing to be handled. There are sustainability issues with wetland restoration. There are so many issues of community and the government is not showing up to do anything. So this moment is pivotal in my life. It completely changes my life because it really showed me what it looks like to show up for others. It really gave me a foundation in community care. It serves as a backbone to clerk. So when I talk about sustainability, all that I know of sustainability is not the, the trend that's happening now. Everything I know about sustainability happened during Hurricane Katrina and environmental justice I learned during Hurricane Katrina. And when I came back after being there for six months as a volunteer, I realized I was still very driven to do more. So I went on to do some work for the South Central Gardens, which now it has, a, well, not now, but back then was a plot of land that was the biggest community garden in Los Angeles. And the land had been sold off to Walmart. And the activists were basically involved in trying to get Walmart to back down because this garden was feeding so many families. It was a massive, I think, two or three acre lot, which is now a Walmart warehouse. So um, when I talk about food justice or I talk about things that are revolving around food, this is where my roots come from. This isn't something new for me. And all these things really are circular in Clur. I didn't really think that these experiences were going to be the foundation to the brand, but they are. And I think that uh, these are the big impact moments that help me form my pillars. These are my personal pillars. These are my personal values that I've built the brand on. I do know that you went on to establish yourself as a leader within the beauty industry, but was that shift between that period of your life into kind of the mainstream beauty world, you know, was there tension there? I would imagine the mindset would be hard to kind of switch between or carry through. Before um, August of 2005, I'm a college student and I was putting myself through college as a, just a freelance makeup artist. I was working in different department stores and things like that. And then Katrina hits and I'm already out of school. I just you know graduated, I think in June. So my interest in beauty was already really solidified. I'd already been in the beauty business. I hadn't had 
an experience, like a community experience like Katrina ever in my life. My second cousin was the vice president of the NAACP in Los Angeles, Los Angeles chapter, and he oversaw a few Black-owned banks in the Los Angeles area. So I grew up a little bit with him. He was quite older than me. This is my mother's cousin, so he's a little older than me. But that aspect of giving back and staying within your community was was embedded over summers with my, my aunt, his mother. And my aunt was also very much involved. So when Katrina happens, I think that that little bit of giving back and working within your community clicks all those summers with my aunt and being around my cousin, they all click a little bit. And I just have this awareness that I know that this internship isn't important. The beauty industry that I was in in college, my freelance makeup jobs are not important. The only thing is important at this moment is human life. And I am watching people on their roofs die. And I know that I'm just one person, but what if there were a 100,000 of me that felt the same way. And it turns out that there were, I just had to get there. So I don't think there was ever a conflict because there was always that part of me that grew up with people around me who felt the same need and felt the same drive to be involved with their community. When I came back from Katrina Relief, getting involved with the South Central Garden on an activism level was allowing me to continue that work. But I still had to make a living. That's kind of the double-edged sword is like, you still have to eat. So you can be, you know, a nonprofit or you can do full-time activism work, but you still have to have a roof over your head. So I was actually still doing makeup. I came back and went to work for MAC Cosmetics, but there was never a part of me that ever felt conflicted about people first. And that was one of the things I actually learned in the cosmetic industry, being a makeup artist at MAC. That was the, the foundation of MAC. It was, I think, all people, all races, all colors, all MAC. And There was no makeup brand that really had that foundation of really just including everyone, whether it be trans people, black people, people of all colors, all backgrounds, all Mac. And that actually played a big role in my life because that set the example for what a cosmetic company could be to me. Absolutely. And then in terms of translating some of those experiences into Claire, obviously there's been evolution within how you've approached the brand in terms of rebranding, Urban Outfitters, when they carried Claire. Tell me a little bit about the moments that led up to this more recent chapter of the business and what you've kind of taken from these experiences so far. Well, we were at Urban Outfitters, I think for two years, two and a half years, and it did very well in terms of sales but it could not pick up any legs. It just could not get the PR. It was not recognized. We just did not have the visibility. And so I knew something was wrong because we had incredible products. We had great formulas and we had incredible distribution. So being at Urban Outfitters is like 200 stores. So that is for your first retailer, that's a huge undertaking. And what I realized was it was physically all there, but the heart of the brand wasn't developed. I wasn't putting my pillars, like I didn't build brand pillars. I built physical products. I built products without the heart of the brand. And I realized, okay, so products are great. Packaging is awesome. Distribution is there, but the brand has no heart. And when do I come in? Where's my voice? So really I thought, I think what's missing is sort of this human aspect of the brand. And I think that I need to pour myself 
not into the ingredients, not into the formulations, but pour my heart and my experiences into the brand. And that is what is going to make the brand different. Any company can make a good formula, make a good facial oil or moisturizer, but not every brand has heart. And what I realized was my life, my experiences, my take, my philosophy was totally different. So that took some time to rebrand. And that is why essentially I paused and decided to end the relationship at Urban Outfitters to really adjust and create a brand that I had felt like was missing. I really wanted to create something that I wanted to experience and I had always expected, but never did. It's such an important transformative decision to do that. You know, we were chatting a little bit before recording and just kind of touching on how brand building, community building, really showing up in this interconnected age, there's so much nuance to it. And I think for founders, the expectations of what stories we tell and how often and how quickly we show up in the digital space has kind of shaped these unrealistic standards and almost contributed to this performative environment that many business owners find themselves having to cater to. And so now as you've kind of found your footing and as you've continued to uphold Claire's pillars, you know, ranging from sustainability, inclusivity, community, and maintain boundaries as a founder in terms of how much you share about your own life and story. I'm curious about your relationship with Pace because everything in your life has seemed to come at pivotal times just as you've grown into yourself. But yeah, talk to me a little bit about Pace and how you kind of view that in the context of what you're building. I mean, Pace really has to do with my decision making. I think that I wouldn't even call it pace. I feel like it's how and when I make my decisions. And I literally see my decisions as seeds and planting seeds, and I have to allow them to grow. You have to nurture, you have to water, you have to wait for them to grow. You plant a seed, you don't pick the fruit the same day. So I allow myself to take a step back, plant seeds, take a step back, plant seeds, take a step back, and watch things grow. I am not interested in moving quickly. I'm not interested in making decisions that don't suit me. And I think if I wasn't so intentional with my pace and my decision making, I'd be making a lot of bad decisions. One of the things in just setting my own boundaries, I've had to really learn to say no to many things, most things actually, because most things don't fit me. Most things don't suit not just my brand pillars, but the level of integrity that I want to operate on. So I think, you know, as far as my decision making goes, it's a slow process. And, and I tell everybody around me that I just don't move fast. I'll give you the heads up now that I don't make decisions quickly. And if you can run with that and take your time, then great. If you're not okay with it, then you know we're probably not a good fit. So absolutely, I think pacing myself, pacing my decision making and creating the boundary of simply saying no and then revisiting, it's really optimized my life because I get a chance to weigh out the pros and cons before I jump into anything. And I think that's reflective in the brand because, you know, just the rebrand as a whole was a two and a half year process. I didn't rush anything. Would you say that's been inherent or is it something you've had to refine? When I think back of myself as a teenager, I was really conscious with my decisions. I don't think that it was all the way developed, but I do think it was something that was already there. I can't say that I made great decisions, but I think as I've gotten older and I developed what it is that I feel represents myself, my company, and how I find things that align with those that was never there. But I think the head on my shoulders and my discipline was there since I was very young. 
I'm sure. And we've only been speaking for a few minutes, but I get the sense that everything is is done with an extra level of care. And really, that should just be the baseline for how we all move through the world, especially during this time. And then I think too, to kind of touch on the themes that we like to explore on this podcast, which includes slow storytelling and pacing ourselves in the digital age, Claire's social presence has really become such a grounding force to kind of build the community as well. And I think too, just on a greater scale, the shift towards visual storytelling has transformed industries. And I think visuals can be an inspiration, but they can also be a distraction. And so as you look at Claire's category in skincare, something that's so personal, I'm curious what you've learned about using visual storytelling as a vehicle to create focused narratives and inspire collective impact for Claire's community. Well, I am a visual person. I am dyslexic. So dyslexia is a neurological disorder. It affects how you see the world and how you tell stories and how you perceive information. So it really has something to do with the wiring between your eyes and your brain. And that's why some dyslexic people, not all, but some dyslexic people read backwards. They see letters and words backwards. That's not something I've ever dealt with, and that's not part of my dyslexia. But as a lifelong dyslexic person, visual storytelling is the world I know. It's actually the only world I know. Words can, you know, you can take it or leave it. If you want to read it, great. If you don't, I I get it. I totally understand you don't want to read it. So um, I believe that visual storytelling is the way that I best connect. You know, Instagram is this massive platform for a reason because of its immediate payoff for that visual connection. You can see something within just a few seconds and it will tell you a story very, very quickly. There are not many words. There's not a lot of interpretation. But I think that the visual world, the way that we visually communicate, I think it's critical. I mean, it's critical in how we perceive our world. But for me, with in terms of the brand and Clur having a very particular aesthetic, telling a very particular narrative, when I got on Instagram, and I think it was maybe 2014, I'm not exactly sure, but I want to say 2014, there were very few representations for people of color and particularly dark-skinned Black people. And in terms of storytelling for the brand, that became the center focus. I certainly understand what it feels like not to be seen. And I understood that I could use this platform, even before I had you know a, a significant amount of followers in a community, I could still use this platform every day to put out something in the world that maybe one person would see themselves, maybe two people would see themselves. But if I kept at it and I kept doing it and I kept using visual storytelling to to build this brand, not only would people feel seen and that would reflect seeing themselves aligned with beautiful products, seeing themselves aligned with clean products, I felt like the impact on that could be so so huge. I want to say I knew that it was so important, but I didn't realize the impact that I actually would have. It's done so beautifully. Has there been sort of an unexpected story that you've told that you didn't maybe anticipate there was a need for? I think everything has been unexpected with Claire, to be perfectly honest with you. I I did not expect 
for people to gravitate to seeing something they hadn't seen before. And because the reception to the brand wasn't well received when I first relaunched, I thought that, okay, well, I'm going to have a, a, just a small niche community that wants to see this. And this sort of alignment of clean beauty, science, high level aesthetic paired with slow living and intentional words. I figured there'll be a few people that are interested, but I think I didn't really know what exactly would come of it, but it has inspired me to continue to keep going. It's inspired a lot of people that reach out and are so happy to see the brand thriving. You know, a few days ago, I got a DM and someone said, hi, I just love your brand. I want you to know, I think your Twitter got hacked. (laughs) And I said, what? And he said, I think your Twitter got hacked. And I said, okay, let me check. It did. It was like some coupon that was being, you know, used to use on our Twitter. And I said, I wrote her back. Thank you so much. And she said, no, 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 thank you. I follow your brand. I follow all the platforms and I just want your brand to win no matter what, because it's done so much for me. So I figured the least I could do is just tell you that I think your Twitter was hacked. (laughs) And (laughs) it gave me a good chuckle, but it also meant so much that she was looking out for the best interest of Clerk. I think that's where that element of community care can make its way into brand building. And, you know, we're seeing this across so many categories, but it's not really about brand anymore. It is about community and connection, whatever that looks like with the tools that we have to start these conversations. But those little gestures make all the difference. And it's something that's been interesting for me to kind of look at as I rebuild slow stories. And slow stories for me is kind of a culmination of all of my experiences being in this digital space and learning what's really necessary in order to add value. And something that I always like to ask each of our guests with that in mind is what this idea of slow content or storytelling means to them. And I know you've touched on that in terms of visuals, but I think in terms of your process, when it comes to telling stories, I'm curious what that brings to mind for you. I'm so personally intertwined into the brand, not a visual fixture because I don't post myself every day, but I'm so deeply intertwined that, you know, I still do so much of the social media. If there's something important that has to be said, I am the one that's saying it. I don't think that it's necessarily shifted anything for me because I'm just putting out what's internally inside of me in a digital space. So I don't know that it's actually shifted much for me because I I feel like it's just taught me to express myself in a a sort of virtual community versus, you know, one-on-one. But Clur is really more of a platform for, you know, not just community, but it is the way I express myself. I get the sense that so much of what's there is coming from an intuitive place. And, you know, we're having this conversation at the height of some really critical inflection points in this country, politically, socially, financially, every aspect of life is being called into question. And, you know, as you build a brand that's focused on self-care and the self, what's changed for you in terms of that perspective in the ways that we approach beauty, wellness? Why is it important? And what are some things that you hope to reinvigorate in terms of how you approach it yourself as we continue to go through this transformative time? I really feel like my relationship with self-care and taking care of myself, it's so minimal. I'm really much more interested in taking care of other people. I don't need much. I know that I don't need much. I 
am a very naturally strong person. So self-care for me, it can be a simple nap. It can be a cup of tea. Like I'm enjoying some iced peppermint tea now or just being in my garden. My real self-care, the way I really take care of myself is through taking care of others. That is how I feel most rewarded. That is what gives me the most sense of internal love is to see that I can affect change and help other people. You know, and that's where the self-care is preparation for community care comes from because in that last year, you know, with such political upheaval and there was so much going on, having all these people sort of approach Claire, approach me out the blue, we're calling to have no retailers interested to 60 to 70 retailers interested. It was traumatic. It was traumatic. Mm-hmm. So I realized I don't need that much self-care. I will always have the strength because of probably just how I grew up. I will always have the strength to keep going, but it's others who I'm most concerned about. So I've learned that my relationship with self-care is not as important as my relationship to community care is. And navigating these sort of times of reckoning have always been part of my life. I grew up in Los Angeles and watched the LA riots play out on my grandmother's porch. So I've never had the leisure of disconnecting from these things, you know, socially and politically. They've always been part of my life. Being born and raised in Los Angeles and growing up in Compton, there is no leisure in disconnecting to things that are happening on the ground you live on. So this wasn't something new for me. Essentially, you know, as I spoke about Katrina Relief and um, being a volunteer there and living in one of the worst hit communities, I very much understood that this was part of my life and there was no disconnecting. It'd be part of anything I'd ever put in the world. So I think my self-care is literally preparation for community care. And that's exactly where those words come from, because I don't really see one without the other. I don't see the purpose of self-care if it's not driving something else. You know, I don't know why brands, no particular brands, but why brands promote self-care without intention. Like I'd, I'll mm-hmm. never understand that, you know, taking a bath or putting a mask on, all these things, they're self-serving. The, you know, self-serving is very different from self-care with intention. And, and that's what I believe in. I don't necessarily think that just taking care of ourselves serves a bigger purpose. I know that we need to, but it has to have its foundation in something else. A lot of that sort of stems from the the plight of the individual just in this country. But I think we're slowly waking up to the fact that that's just not sustainable to put the blinders on, to actually put some momentum behind self-care and using it as a vehicle to establish that sense of, of grounding with other people. You know, we've been at home for over a year now. Have you found any new ways to do that? How are you taking care of those around you while not being able to be around them? I feel closer to people. <laughs> I don't know if that's a sense. It sounds so strange, but I feel energetically closer to people, not physically, but energetically, mentally more tapped in because everyone else has slowed down. Whereas I was already moving very slowly, very deliberate and intentionally, and now everyone else has slowed down. I feel like that has energetically allowed me to connect on a deeper level to people. In terms of actually doing community care, I spent last summer volunteering at a Summer Everything Community Center and really let me go back and explain the organization a little bit. This is a food justice organization. So what they do is provide free organic produce boxes. So locally sourced produce boxes for people living in the Watts, South Central, greater Los Angeles area. And these are 
people who are basically living in food deserts. So boxless produce filled with produce that's grown here locally in California and then distributed to people who couldn't otherwise afford organic produce. So on a physical level, that was my community care. And every time I got in the car and left there, I told myself like, this is my self-care. Being at this community center is my self-care. So self-care is preparation for community care, which is really something we continue to state as part of our brand because that is genuinely where it came from. You know, being disconnected physically doesn't necessarily mean we have to be disconnected energetically, mentally at all. I think this past year has shown us how close we really can be without being physically there. I think it's taken away the facade. We really have to deal with what are the issues in front of us, not just how we look, how we feel, or how these things make us feel. Like, what are really the underlining issues that are coming up to the surface that we have to deal with? And there's, you know, you can't get distracted by someone being in front of you. So I actually think I feel closer to people than I've ever felt. It's also been a time in terms of reflection about how we keep this momentum going this interest in tackling some of these long-standing issues. I'm curious, are there questions that you hope people start asking you or asking those in their own communities in terms of how self-care can be a vehicle for community? What are some things that you'd like to be asked as we continue moving through this time? Oh gosh, that's a great question. I don't know that it's a question that I'd want to be asked. I think we should all be asking, what does community care look like to you? On an individual level, I don't think it's necessarily clear establishing that that's going to change anything. I think every single one of us have to look at it. what does community care look like for you? What does it look like for you at this very moment in time? At this very moment, <laughs> I'm actually Googling recipes for my mother and putting together some fresh summer recipes for her. She works at a school for disabled kids in Dallas, Texas. So I'm actually putting together some recipes for her to give to the kids at school. So I'm putting together a recipe book for fresh herbs and fresh salads for the kids at school. Fantastic. I know you mentioned that you just moved. Do you have a garden? I do. I have an herb garden. I have lots of herbs growing and we have pretty dry soil here. We're actually really in a kind of a, in the bottom of a mountain, if you could imagine. It's very, very dusty. It's very dry. So the soil here is not that great. So we're going to put in some raised beds very soon, which is amazing. But there is actually a community garden and we have a plot in our community garden as well. It's lovely. That's the one thing about being in New York. The access to private outdoor space is something that I miss, but I happen to be down the street from Prospect Park, which has just been such a, a place of respite in terms of being able to connect with nature. I believe there are community gardens that you can probably have a small little plot in. Something I think I'll look into. I'm really taking things day by day and trying to go with the flow in a way that I hadn't before this time, which sounds a little silly given the fact that it's something that's so aligned with slowing down. But I think bringing everything that we've talked about, it really is reinforcing that sense of intention. So it's, yeah, it's on my mind for sure. And there's so much more that we could touch on in this conversation, but just to leave our listeners with a note of self-care, community care, well-being. I have one last question for you that I think will be a nice way to bring this conversation to a close. And that question is, why do you think slowing down our relationship to content or the digital space will ultimately help us live, work, and feel better? 
Uh, well, I mean, especially in the digital space, I don't think everything that's put out in the digital space is healthy for human consumption. I don't think everything, all the images that we're seeing, all the content that is being created, I wouldn't say it produces positive energy. And mm -hmm. I think everything, every atom, every flower petal, everything in the world vibrates on energy. Every atom that you could imagine, and we're made up of, you know, atoms. So I think all these things have a vibration. And ultimately, if we're consuming things that are not necessarily good for us, it's like eating a diet full of junk. You can only ingest so much before you get sick. And um, I think that we have to slow down on what we're consuming because it's being fed to us without us really even knowing. You know, you don't have total control over your, your Instagram or your Twitter because these things pop up. It could be commercials. They could be things, you know, ads and things like that. So a lot of this stuff is really out of our control. Whereas, you know, what you put on your plate, you might be totally in control of that. I feel like you really have to look at your appetite for this digital content and sort of sifting through it, the good and the bad. I'm big on unfollowing. I know people take it personal, but I think that ultimately unfollowing and creating a digital space that brings you comfort brings you awareness and can educate you and helps you with your internal relationship with yourself is the way to approach a feed or any digital content. I think ultimately it will help us live better lives if we are consuming better quality content, just like if we're consuming better quality food. Like I said, energetically, I think we all have to be very aware of what we're consuming, what we're putting out, and we all kind of have a responsibility for each other. That was Leslie Thornton, founder of Clur. Be sure to follow Clur online and on social at Clur.co. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.